Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. I'm at rajbalkron.com slash academia. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Itamar Theodore of Zifat Academic College in Israel on a very interesting publication. His Exploring the Bhagavad Gita, Philosophy, Structure, and Meaning. Hello, Itamar. How are you? Hello. Everything is fine. Good to hear you. Yes, good to hear you. You know, we have we have done a little work together. Um, I believe you published a paper um, from Bangkok's World Sanskrit Conference in 2015 on personhood. Yes, yes, indeed. I've been there and I published personhood. I have much interest in personhood, personalism. And in fact, I'm going to be presenting next week a paper in an international conference on personalism, which this year will take place in Israel, surprisingly enough here. Yeah. Oh, how convenient. So we've, we've, we've worked together remotely. Um, I haven't had the pleasure of looking at this publication until um, preparing for this interview. One of, one of the perks of doing this work really is having exposure to interesting works uh, such as this one. Um, now, for, I'm sure there are many people in our audience who um, are very familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, either from uh, the perspective of scholarship, there probably are a number of listeners who may even use it in their personal life. And one thing I will say is among the books we review here, this one has a great deal of um, application for those who are looking to interpret, uh, perhaps even apply the principles principles of the Bhagavad Gita. Would you agree? Yes, I fully agree with that. And that was the purpose of my... uh, interpretation. I, I realized that the Gita is very rich and is very flexible and open for various kinds of uh, interpretations. I realized that. And my own interpretation is an attempt to present uh, the Bhagavad Gita as having a unified structure and potentially making that into a philosophy, a black philosophy, if you like. Yes, definitely. Now, um one of the things, I mean, there are a number of things that are, the work that I do is very different, but there are a number of parallel, parallels in that I also look at text um, and this idea that we can take our cues from the text itself. The text will tell us by its content and by its structure. I really do feel Sanskrit texts are structured so as to influence interpretation in some way. And it seems that you would agree with that idea. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, uh, I see the text as structured, and I, I, I'm trying to uh, reveal the structure as I understand that, of course. So tell us a little bit about um, the structure that you perceive, and you know, you can feel free to talk about whatever you wish regarding the book or your work, but tell, tell our audience about the structure that you talk about in your book. Well, the structure, I call it the three-story house structure, and it's based upon a traditional uh, view uh, considering the uh, Bhagavad Gita to be ladder-like. Uh, actually, this is one of the uh, ways to uh, consider the Bhagavad Gita as having a ladder structure. Arvind Sharma writes about this in other places. So I, I, I did not invent that idea. And this idea, uh, I think the, the roots are, are to be found with Vishwanath Chakravartin. That's the oldest source I found with this ladder idea. He was a 17th, 18th century Bengali writer. And according to this idea, the Bhagavad Gita has a ladder, which is a karma yoga ladder. One follows one's dharmic duty and ascends the ladder through various stages of internal purification, sublimation. One can follow one's dharma with a utilitarian approach. One can go higher 
and try to do it uh, through what I call dharmic utilitarian, utilitarianism. And then one can go higher and perform one's uh, duty without regard to the fruits. That's a very famous, these very famous verses like uh, 247. Karmani eva dikaraste, etc. You can perform your duty without regard to the fruits. This very famous, central, famous idea of the Gita. Then one can go higher and perform one's dharmic duty as a type of yoga, which is a very interesting idea. Being a yogi, a karma yogi, and performing one's dharmic duty, but with an internal state of being a yogi, controlling one's mind, straining one's mind and senses developing inner uh, meditation, and ultimately one can perform one's dharmic duty as bhakti, out of devotion, or alternatively uh, in a position uh, close to that of Shankara's Advaita Vedanta, uh, of kind of a a monistic idea of merging uh, with Brahma, that's also possible, and Shankara did uh, comment upon the Bhagavad Gita. So that's, that's the ladder. And the three stories, that's kind of my own innovation, I would say. And that is dividing the text into three layers of stories, which each has its own unique language and categories. I call, I call the first floor the humanistic form, a floor of a Dharma. And the second one, the, 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 the second floor of yoga. And the third one, the spiritual form. And we can see that in each in each floor, uh, there is a distinct set of ontology and ethics. For example, in the first floor, you'll get the human being. That's ontology. But in the second floor, you'll get something else. That will be uh, the spirit soul, the eternal Atman, the that, that, that self, which is different. Or the ethics of the first floor would be to prosper in this world, whereas the ethics of the second floor would be a indifference, a yogic a, a ethics of indifference towards a samatva, towards success and failure. And the third floor will be the floor of bhakti, love God. So that's basically the structure uh, I see in the Gita. And according to, uh, accordingly, uh, everyone, it's quite universal. Everyone can find a particular dharma, uh, whether one is a, a, prof- a professional dharma or a personal dharma, and start ascending uh, the ladder while remaining uh, socially responsible, not, not, not relinquishing, but relinquishing internally while the fruits of one's labor, but externally adhering to dharma, and in that sense, remaining socially responsible in the family, in society. So that's basically the way I envision the Bhagavad Gita's uh, structure. The three-story house analogy is intriguing. Um, the first thought that comes to mind is that it should be abundantly clear to anybody who engages the Gita, whether by verse or, or chapter or someone who engages to read the whole thing in one sitting, it should be abundantly clear that there are contradictions left, right, and center. But also that these contradictions seem to me to apply to different uh, degrees of resolution, different orders of resolution even different orders of reality. So um, if you have an issue with uh, your health, you know, a medical issue, that's at the issue is occurring at the order of biochemistry. You won't seek out a physicist to address the atoms in your tumor, say. It seems to me that the Gita is operating on different orders of reality and levels, levels of human experience. And so I really resonate with having three stories um, with respect to which order of reality are we addressing now to navigate life. The first two um, strike me very much as, um, see, see what I've done is I've looked at uh, various myths, the the goddess mythologies of the Devi Mahatmya or even the epics through the lens of this binary of poverty and liberty, world affirmation, world denial, royal ideology versus ascetic ideology. And it seems to me the first two stories of the house relate to what I call this double helix. The the, the first story of the house relates to poverty dharma, how to prosper 
in the world in a dharmic way. And the second story, if I'm not mistaken, of the house relates to the existential concerns or the, 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 the impulse of contemplation or, or, or striving for some sort of spiritual goal. Um, am I mischaracterizing these first two stories or is this the same? No, no, I think you're right. I think the first one would be a Kavriti and <clears throat> the second one would be Nivriti. This would be, will, will uh, <clears throat> represent uh, the struggle, the endeavor to go there. Uh, the second story is characterized by a struggle. One struggles with one's mind and senses. Uh, all these verses like uh, the second chapter about a turtle withdrawing its limbs within the shell, these verses which Gandhi loved. These are second story uh, verses where one tries to uh, detach oneself from sense objects and build up an uh, internal uh, meditation, so to speak. So that would be a liberty that's true. Mm. And then the third story will be beyond struggling. When one has a conquered, if you like, sees struggling and is actually absorbed in that level of either moksha or bhakti, love of God, or a realization of oneness within that spiritual state. So the third level is the level of the awakened soul, how one walks the world when one is awakened, presumably how Krishna functions or presumably how um, the enlightened masters of India function type thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so this is this is fascinating because so when I see the text, I see these two orders of reality, pravriti, nivriti, and I see that there's a clever interplay of what the problem is. The the, the text starts off with a pravriti problem, like a, a warrior needs to fight. This is a time of war. We need to protect the kingdom, and then the deeper problem is that he's suffering. He's lamenting. He's upset, and this. This is what launches Krishna's discourse of, you know, the wise do not grieve over the living of the de- or the dead. You know, like, what are you upset about? It's, it's just really, really fascinating. I almost want to say it's a sleight of hand, but it's not. It's very conscious, but it's very subtle. This, this intermingling between is the issue to get him to stand up physically and fight, or is the issue to get him to stand up spiritually? Yeah, I think you're really, really pointed a very important uh, juncture in the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna, throughout the first chapter, speaks about, I don't want to kill my teacher, don't want to die, don't want them to die, this, this, this. And then Krishna says, he say, he, Krishna changes the discussion's uh, point of view. I call it the Copernican revolution. He doesn't answer him directly, but he approaches the question from a higher level. He says, death, I don't see any death. The soul is eternal. The self is eternal. Which death do you see? I always existed, all these kings. You are all these, you know, not Vivaham, Jatuna, some of these verses, the soul is eternal, the human spinata, he he approaches the problem from a a different point of view altogether uh, with a vision of eternity. So that's actually a very, I think, dramatic uh, point in the Bhagavad Gita, the second chapter, where Krishna changes the level of discussion and speaks to Arjuna from a different point of view. Later, he returns back to that pravriti a, a point of view in these, uh, uh, these, these, chap- these verses about uh, happy other kshatriyas who can approach heaven through dharmic war and so forth. But in these, this, these, these verses about the self, the soul, these, are, these represent a different point of view where Krishna uh, climbs or goes up, ascends, ascends the, uh, to, to a higher story and speaks from a higher point of view. Well, if you enjoy imagery, and clearly you do because of your three-story house analogy, you know, when I, when I think about what we call Hinduism, or certainly when I teach it, I think of the image of a double helix. And so I, I think of it as the Dharmic double helix. There's a poverty strand and a nivriti strand. And both have to, they'll never touch. Neither strand of the double helix will ever touch. They're contradictory. They're structural opposites. But together they're woven. It appears to be one image. And you have to somehow see the poverty side and the nivriti side in that the problem isn't what Arjuna has to do. I mean, that is up to question. What your right action is up to question whether right action is being a butcher or not being a butcher for your dharma or being a warrior or not being a warrior. But the problem becomes how he feels about it, what he thinks about it, how he views it. 
becomes the problem of suffering and right seeing. And, and so it seems to me that Krishna's ability to, 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 to reframe the problem, from the perspective of your read, I would say that's because he is in the third state. He is in the third level of the house. Yeah. Only because he's in the third level of the house could he begin to see the first two so clearly and be able to shift between one and the other effortlessly. Whereas for us, we may be baffled to shift from both of these orders of reality, but he can presumably do that because he's in, he's, he's in, he's at the third level of the house, which is really just the, the apex um, of right seeing, you know, it seems to me. Yeah, I think this is a wonderful articulation of the Gita. I support, of course, and I think you're stating it wonderfully. What, um, so you know, I, I have, there's so much to say and, um, Part of why this is a rich conversation is because it's about an extraordinarily rich text. Like the Bhagavad Gita, you know, we have to keep in mind whether we're here to talk about the Bhagavad Gita or to talk about your book on the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so oh. let's, let's limit it to the first and then we can expand into the, the, the second uh, if time permits. You know, those among our audience are probably um, not going to be used to so accessible a book. This is a book wherein the Gita is um, translated and commented upon. Yes. Now, from the perspective of scholarship, comment, maybe tell uh, our audience, uh, comment on the fact that this is a very atypical kind of um, enterprise. I realize that I've seen many Gita editions and most offer an introduction. And once they <clears throat> done with the introduction, they offer the full text. There, there are some exceptions. One famous exception is uh, Zainer's, R.C. Zainer's uh, Bhagavad Gita edition, published by uh, Oxford University Press in the 1960s, I believe. And he, he actually, he does two things, which I follow. One, he uh, divides the text into sections, which I've also done. I don't uh, offer a full uh, chapter, but I divide the chapter into sections of about 10 verses each. I group them together. I also name them, which is kind of an editorial intervention, if you like. And then I offer a commentary uh, trying to explain what's happening in this section. What is the text about? What is it saying? What is the significance? So I do that. And as I mentioned, I follow Zainer. I see myself in some ways as continuing uh, his work, hopefully, in some ways. So yeah, I, I am doing that. I am dividing the text into sections. And I'm offering a commentary uh, following each uh, section, a short commentary, uh, which will help to read the whole Gita as, uh, from beginning to end. There are about uh, 70 sections throughout the whole entire book. And each section is followed by a half a page, one page uh, commentary. Is the commentary geared towards academics, uh, scholars of the Gita, or is it geared towards aspirants, or both? I think... I mean, in one of my reviewers, Hamza Stanton in, in Philosophy East and West, has written that I actually offer two books in one. And I agree with that. That for the scholars, I would say that my main argument is the structure. That would be more interesting for scholars. And the uh, commentary would be more interesting, I think, for uh, readers, either uh, academic readers, uh, students, and also general readership. Uh, but perhaps also for academics, I, I'm not sure exactly about the borders, but I am aware of that a division between a, a logical, a theoretical argument, which will be the structure a argument, and the, the, the commentary, which will be for uh, accessibility, for explaining, for maybe touching the spirituality of the text. Uh, yes, so I, I do agree uh, with that uh, distinction. Well, it was more of a question in terms of the intended audience, because um, for me personally, um, because of my background and my perspective on life, um, an academic book need not preclude a book that is useful for those trying to understand the, the, the text in their own lives. I mean, it's difficult to do, it's difficult to do them both well. Um, but for me, the, the, the richness of the Gita is not just as a repository of the history of ideas. The richness of the Gita is as a, a guide map 
to lived human experience. I mean, the whole bloody point of it is how do you live your life? And so while that may not be uh, or fall squarely within the responsibility of an academic, certainly not a, of a historian of religion, um, maybe not even someone strangely doing philosophy or ethics uh, or even narrative theory, nevertheless, the, the huge pink elephant in the room of anybody writing on these texts is that the text is meant to be embodied and lived. And we academics, we scholars, we as in the times in which we are functioning as scholars, obviously need not, ought not, should not write from that perspective. But the, the power is um, the power is acknowledging that perspective. We, we must know that that perspective exists and that is the point of the text. Um, I may be biased, but my sense is that it's, it's necessary to acknowledge the 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 life of the text do you um how did this project come about did you have a history with the gita was this part of your studies did you have you know t tell us about your interest in the text and how this this uh, book uh, arose well i i began my uh, engagement uh, with indian spirituality on a personal level I have to admit that I was around uh, the age of 20 and I started uh, <coughs> practicing yoga in uh, various forms of uh, bhakti. So when, when you say you're around the age of 20, the, 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 the listeners may not know that was five, 10 years ago, correct? I know, 59 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to know your age, but to give them a sense of the epoch. This is a couple of decades ago. So yeah, yeah, that, that, that's how I began my engagement personal uh, journey, if you like, into uh, Indian spirituality. And uh, it was fascinating. And then I decided to become an academic of that uh, field. And I, uh, I, I went to school and studied. That's, that's basically uh, my story. So I did have, and I hopefully I still have some experience of uh, Indian spirituality, although I don't think it's so strong as it was when I was young. But uh, and I, I'm, I'm definitely fascinated, and I became a scholar of that uh, tradition. Yeah. So, in terms of the um, structure of the book, have you have you come across any uh, work on ring composition? Is this familiar to you? Mm, not really. Not really. No, it's uh, it's, it's not hugely popular. Um, but uh, maybe I'll send you a link uh, after this conversation. The reason I ask is because I noticed that many Sanskrit compositions are composed as narrative rings, um, where they, the, the, the structure of it is circular, and there's a, a midpoint in the text from which you can interpret the rest of the text. It's an idea I played with while looking at the, at the goddess myths, and now I see ring composition everywhere. So I'll send it to you. But... Um, where did you get the inspiration of looking at the structure? Like, how did that come up for you? Was it a thinker? Did it, did it just strike you uh, naturally? Or where did you, where did that come from? Naturally, it, it, it wasn't a particular thinker. I just, I, I, I just looked at the Gita and said, wow, there must be an, I remember even the moment it came, I was studying my MA and it, it came to me, we were studying a philosophy of religion in one of these courses and I said, wow, I have to, figure out the structure of the Gita. It was something that I would say kind of uh, internal. Uh, I did uh, learn in a traditional uh, seminar in India uh, before going to school, and I was exposed to this idea of the ladder. Uh, I gave credit in my book to that uh, uh, school, and later I found out that the roots go to that thinking which I mentioned, Vishwana Chakravarti. So as far as the ladder, that, that was a traditional idea, which I, uh, uh, say, I, I joined that with uh, uh, three uh, stories and made it in those three stories house. So the idea of the ladder is something I was exposed before. I did divide the text uh, kind of myself into these three layers and brought it together into this uh, three-story house. Uh, so I did apply some traditional idea, but that passion for uh, structuring the Gita, for uh, 
the highlighting is structure for trying to show it uh, as a unified text. I guess I had it struck me as something which one has to do. I don't know. And the this the. It's all, it seemed also obvious to me that the texts were structured in a very, very conscious way, um, even when they were highly, the more, ironically, the more redacted they are, the more quote-unquote interpolations there are, the, 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 the richer the, the, that history, to me, the more consciously the final product was structured. And so there was a great deal of effort put into what goes where, what order the chapters occur in, which Parvan the Gita occurs in, Devi um, Mahatmya, why is it in the Markani Purana? They could have put it in anywhere. They could have put it anywhere. Why? There has to be a reason. This isn't a careless, haphazard, let's just stick it there because this has to, happens to be the pile of manuscripts we're, we're, we're copying over today. And so um, so it's, it's abundantly clear. There's, there, to me, anyhow, I agree with that insight that, that, that there's a very conscious crafting of how the chapters are structured. And I don't think it's blatantly obvious because I think there are a number of things happening at the same time, right? Um, like there's, there is method to the madness. So maybe, yeah, maybe you should say a little bit about specifically how you see the, the work structured with respect to these three stories. What? Uh, the first level, uh, that of Dharma, uh, <clears throat> has 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 a lot uh, to say about it. Uh, uh, in general, it speaks about uh, Varna Ashrama Dharma, and that's quite universal. It, it aspires to encompass human society. It it it, it, it actually uh, connects to uh, or, or potentially connects to each and every uh, human being. Everyone is doing some work some kind of activity, and this can be sublimated, whether it's personal, being a father, a mother, or a son, or a husband, wife, and so forth, whether being professional, means Brahmin, Chatriya, Vaisha, Shudra, that actually encompasses the whole of human society. So it's very wide and universal, and it's also a world-affirming. It's encouraging prosperity. It actually wants to see the world uh, as a healthy, happy, peaceful, uh, uh, prosperous uh, place. So that, that is the first story. Then the second story is uh, more uh, existential, as you mentioned before. It's more existential. It uh, looks upon one's existential uh, state in life. Uh, what am I doing here? Who am I? Uh, how can I? What is the goal of life? I, I, how can I uh, overcome this problem of uh, birth and uh, death? And uh, while being in one's dharma, that, that's maybe the, the very interesting part of the Gita, while being in one's dharma, one can uplift oneself and see things from a higher perspective, more spiritual, and in the same time, restrain oneself, become uh, more self-controlled, more, more of a yogi, more spiritual, and be a better person in society, not go to the forest, but work one's life, be in one's family, and be a karma yogi. So that's, that's a, a higher level. Then, of course, uh, if you go to the third level, that's, that there one can go into spiritual uh, realizations. Uh, one can have spiritual visions. That will be mystical visions, if you like. They love God, seeing all creatures, seeing the oneness of all beings. That's... Uh, completely mystical uh, state. And one can do that while being in, in the world, while being dharmic. One can be a, a mystic in one's work. So I, th I think it's fascinating and it's all encompassing and it, it, it touches all spheres of life. One can, one can uh, find uh, oneself in the Gita, wherever one is. Where, and now that's before even it touching the the three gunas, that the, the Sankhya idea of the three gunas, uh, how can one look at oneself uh, uh, from the point of view of the gunas? I'm now in sattva, but perhaps now I'm in rajas, I'm in passion, uh, but from that passion I can be elevated. I can also engage uh, my passions in a yogic way, even my tamas, 
my uh, uh, darkness, my ignorance, even that has a place uh, in my uh, existence. Uh, for example, I sleep. Sleeping is a tamas. And that is a very uh, holistic uh, way uh, of life. I, I, I've done some work, comparative work, on uh, the Bhagavad Gita and Chinese philosophy. Uh, and actually published a co-edited book called Brahman and Dao, and I have a chapter on the Gita and Chinese philosophy. And that brings from the Gita what I call the naturalistic aspects, things which don't come so uh, in, in the Gita's uh, 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 meeting with the Western thought. It brings the yin and yang uh, aspects. And uh, I think the Gita actually has this these naturalistic aspects, which are very interesting, very interesting, and see they see reality in a different way, in a non-rational way, in a more of a particular world through the gunas, which is a whole other view, which is there in the Gita. So I think the Gita is fascinating from each and every point of view you look at it. So, so do you- do you see, um, for the benefit of our audience, are certain chapters dedicated to certain stories of the house? Well, in general, uh, yes, I would say first chapter is first story. Then second chapter, you have the whole ladder all the way from the lower, uh, all the way up. Then third chapter, Karma Yoga, would basically be a, a, first, cha- a first story. Uh, and then... Uh, a fourth chapter, various things. Fifth chapter, very similar. The a third chapter, also a, th- a first story, a dharma. And then sixth chapter is a definitely a yogic, a very distinctly a, a second story. And then seventh chapter, is that's where the text enters the third story. From the beginning, very clearly, even Zainer points out that there's a change of values there, the beginning of the seventh chapter. It goes into theology, uh, visions of divinity, of Godhead, about uh, how God can be seen in the world. Ninth chapter is also similar. Eighth chapter goes a little down uh, to uh, the uh, second story. And now I'm, tenth chapter will again be divinity. And eleventh, divinity. Twelfth, also. And then thirteen goes uh, down uh, to the yogic plane of the second chapter. A 14th, a 15th, 15th is another story because it shows the whole ladder, but the 16th is the lower one, the demons, and then the 17th, and the first half of 18th will be, again, the gunas, the humanistic platform of various levels of action, the called the three gunas, and then at the end, from verse 45, before the summary of the Bhagavad Gita. So yes, you can actually show the stories, the levels through the text, when, when does it go higher? When does it go lower? Basically, the middle of the Gita, chapters uh, 7 to 12 are the highest level, with the exception of chapter 8, which is different, uh, uh, different, uh, 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 slightly lower. I know traditional commentators like to divide the Gita into the first six, second six, and last six chapters. It's, it works, but not, it doesn't work that well. Uh, because the text is more uh, complicated, more uh, sophisticated, but you can, I, 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 I certainly try to uh, point at uh, the levels through the commentary on which level the, the text is speaking. So when you, for example, say that um, the, 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 there's, a different turn, uh, there's a different tone that occurs from chapter 7 onwards, the introduction of um, this mystical dimension is that retained throughout, or is that a, a theme that's concentrated in the middle of the Gita? Well, the, the peaks are uh, chapter seven, uh, then chapter nine, uh, and then chapter uh, ten. That's where Krishna reveals his divinity, and Arjuna surrenders. He says, "I accept your divinity," and then Krishna de- describes how he's to be seen in the world. So that would be. I think uh, the highest theological uh, peaks. The eleventh chapter is also it's different, but it's also a revelation. Uh, the Odyssey. Uh, 
revelation. Uh, so yeah, that these chapters will be the peak, uh, the theological peak of the Gita. And then at the end of the Gita, uh, the text returns to these uh, peaks, uh, almost word for word. I mean, the concluding verse of chapter nine is there in 1865, more or less the same verse, maybe one word uh, difference. Becoming the and so forth. One of the principles of ring composition is that um, the composition ends where it begins. It comes full circle to ring, but at the middle, the midpoint or the middle is is highlighted. It's featured. It's the most important. It's central, literally central, as well as thematically well, central. I'm not sure it's the most important, but it's the highest. I think it's all. Uh, it's all important. I mean, just just the second, the, the, the second part. I mean, the, the middle chapters in themselves would be sufficient. The whole thing together uh, creates these dynamics. But uh, yes, the, the the middle part is uh, in many ways the highest theological parts. That's where uh, one goes beyond the struggle with the senses in the mind and actually uh, attains visions, darshans. I, I I think I mentioned it in the commentary that at this point. The conversation is not any more argumentative, but rather a visionary. Open your eyes and see. I am the taste of water, the light of the sun and the moon, the ability or, or, or humanity in the human being, and so forth. That, that's a vision. It's not an argument. It's not an imperative. It's a vision. Open your eyes and look around. See. See how the world structure look around you see divinity everywhere i think it's these are beautiful beautiful uh, verses uh, and they are basically darshans visions mystical visions if you like so it's um from one perspective it seems to make sense that they begin on the battlefield and uh, ascend into this more spiritual mystical space in the heart of the matter and then Return towards the battlefield at the end of the text. There seems yes, to be yeah, yeah, yeah. an over, overarching up the mountain, down the mountain. Yes, feels. Going up the mountain and then down the mountain, but going through a whole journey, and then returning to the battlefield, but enlightened this time, enlightened. Yeah. Um, was there um, was there anything about this um, this process of yours writing this book? Uh, was there anything that was particularly um, either challenging or did you were you surprised in some ways? Is there something that struck you? Could you comment about what you what you learned uh, while writing this book, or what what uh, were there any bumps in the road? Well, it was it was a journey. I first wrote a Hebrew edition, and uh, that was good. Uh, but then I went to study in Oxford, and that. That was where I wrote the mature book, uh, the English version. I did the whole thing from the beginning again. Did a new translation. I mean, the same translation, but I did from the beginning. I expanded the commentary, and I I felt that actually uh, I'm 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 coming with something new. Uh, actually, a friend of mine who's a philosopher, he said, "You actually uh, your your argument is that you have uh, uh, discovered a philosophical book." that actually uh, the Gita is not only a, a wonderful uh, work of uh, wisdom or spirituality, but it's actually a real unified uh, philosophy. And that, 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 that idea I, I very much felt uh, in Oxford, that I felt that I was kind of the, one of the uh, centers of uh, world scholarship. And from that point of view, I said, wow, I have a new philosophy Asian philosophy, Indian philosophy, Hindu philosophy, uh, to, uh, uh, that's what I'm actually doing. And I did that at the theology faculty, the University of Oxford, and that place is actually traditional. Many, many great theologians actually work there. So I felt, yes, this is the place to work out uh, a philosophy with the world uh, ambitions. And I start talking about the Gita as a potential philosophy for the 21st uh, century, something which can unite East and West, which has also theistic uh, trends, which can correspond with uh, Western uh, spirituality, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Uh, 
uh, it also has Chinese elements or elements which can correspond to Chinese uh, philosophy, as I mentioned, yin yang, the gunas, and other things, Tao, Brahman. And I actually start to see the Gita as a potentially, a potentially 21st world philosophy, uh, which to my mind is not in the East, but in the middle, in, between East and West. East means China, West means the West, and the Gita uh, geographically uh, in between. So yes, I started uh, to think in these terms uh, while, uh, while doing the work, while writing the book. So could you maybe clarify for us, when you say you consider it now uh, philosophy, uh, rather than just um, wisdom or lore or, or, or spiritual nourishment. You know, in what sense do you mean that? Do you mean, like, in what sense do you mean you've started considering it philosophy proper? Well, uh, I think that, uh, first of all, because of uh, geopolitical uh, uh, changing circumstances, uh, Asia is not anymore the Far East, as it used to say, but becomes much more uh, central and much more uh, dominant, also in terms of uh, philosophy. So I think it's less esoteric and, uh, and more applicable. Yeah, I actually think in these terms, I have various ideas how to apply the Gita uh, in day-to-day life. I, yeah, I, I even think that some of the Western terms could correspond to the Varnas. For example, we have uh, we have the business uh, sector, which corresponds to the Vaishas. We have the public circle, the government, army, uh, administration that corresponds to the Kshatriyas. We have the uh, third sector, sex, sector as they call it, of, uh, of educators that could correspond to the uh, Brahmins. So I have some ideas how the Gita can actually be uh, applicable, how uh, it can actually be turned into philosophy uh, which could uh, unify East and West, be accepted by uh, Western thinkers, uh, Eastern thinkers. I, mean, I, I actually have these ideas of, uh, of the Gita as a potentially uh, universal, uh, yes, doctrine, philosophy, uh, which uh, fits, uh, which is suitable for post-modernity. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think that modernity has its uh, underlying assumptions, uh, which may be questionable. I mean, a human being as rational, uh, rationality being uh, the central quality of a human being, uh, the idea of uh, a choice, free choice. I'm not sure. I think uh, the Gita is much more uh, postmodern and uh, much more fitting uh, a postmodernity in that uh, one has different degrees of subjectivity according to one's position in the gunas. Uh, um, yeah, in, 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 in these terms, I see the Gita as a postmodern, uh, potentially a, a postmodern uh, global philosophy. Do you, in, in your perspective, do you see any potential intrigues or pitfalls to this univer- universalizing of the Gita? Do you, do you see any drawbacks would you consider i mean it seems to me what you're saying is that the the gita uh, is potentially uh, an adequate universal philosophy to be applied to postmodern life and so might might there in your perspective be any pitfalls with that line of thinking well uh, if it becomes too uh, nationalistic uh, it can be a pitfall I mean, it can, it, it can easily lose its spirituality and become a chauvinistic, a nationalistic, a violent. That would be a pitfall. It's difficult sometimes to keep the spirituality and it's easier to kind of accept the more external, I would say, aspects. So yeah, every philosophy has a pitfall. And the Gita can also be misused. Uh, no doubt, I don't think that uh, every, everything said uh, you know, on the strength of the Gita is always uh, absolutely true. It's, uh, but every philosophy can be misused, and also the Gita. So it, it has potential pitfalls, and I'm, I'm sure it does. But by and large, I think it has potential to contribute 
in the present day and age in 21st century. But of course, you can have pitfalls. The other philosophers can be uh, also very worthwhile. I, I don't think that this is the only way. And, and, and you know, it has to be a, a balanced approach uh, to every, every philosophy. So you see it, you see it as um, one of several sources of philosophical, spiritual inspiration to practically change uh, the postmodern world or way of life. Yeah, I see that as a potential philosophy, not the only way, but I see it. And I also think that uh, with the rise of Asia, uh, both uh, China and India, they, they very much want to uh, have their voice also, uh, not only uh, financially and uh, politically, but also uh, uh, philosophically. And it might happen gradually, maybe yes, maybe not, that there will be some kind of unification between Indian, Chinese, and Western philosophy, and the Gita can potentially occupy a place, even a central place there. But let's see, I, I can't really foresee the future, but there is a potential there, which I, I do see. I, I was also working in, in, in Hong Kong. I was teaching there for a few years at Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I also saw the uh, ongoing attempts to articulate contemporary Chinese philosophy. I see it in India. So it might happen, and the Gita may uh, occupy a place there. Also, there is much, uh, many attempts to articulate neo-Gandhian philosophy. Now it's 150, it's 150 birth anniversary, and Gandhi, of course, also uh, his uh, uh, his his ideas were focused around uh, the Gita in many ways. So clearly, from our conversation, um, uh, you enjoy comparative work. So that you've looked, you've looked at the Gita and you've mentioned in passing some comparison uh, to Chinese religious texts. Are you currently working on any comparison or maybe comment on your, your, your favorite or most fruitful point of comparison? Well, uh, I, I did work, as I mentioned, on comparative Indo-Chinese uh, ideas, published a book there. I published another co-edited book with Judith Greenberg, uh, just in 2018, last year, about comparative uh, Hindu-Jewish studies, uh, Hindu, Hinduism and Judaism. And right now, I'm editing a book on the Gita uh, to be published in India, uh, an edited volume on the Gita. This one is not a comparative volume, but a book on the Gita, uh, which hopefully will, uh, will be impressed in the year or whatever. So tell us a little bit about the edited volume. Is there a specific theme or bent or, to, I mean, how many, how many papers are in this volume and is there, what unifies them? What is, what is the, the purpose of this, um, this collection? Well, that edited volume, we have, a, we have about a 10 chapters, either 10 or 9, we'll see, uh, with some famous uh, writers such as uh, Arvind Sharma, and uh, we have a paper by the late Joseph O'Connell, uh, the Canadian, uh, Canadian scholar uh, who passed away in 2012. And we have a chapter by uh, Richard Davis, who have just uh, published, uh, I mean, a few years ago, his book, The Bhagavad Gita Biography. Uh, I would say that uh, I, I'm, I'm the editor of that volume. I write the introduction. And then I write about the structure. That structure is, uh, I would say, the unifying uh, theme. Uh, I also uh, quote Arvind Sharma's chapter where he speaks about the idea of the ladder as a way to interpret the Bhagavad Gita. Not the only way, though, but it is a way he mentioned the ladder. I uh, very much quote uh, Joseph O'Connell's chapter, who is looking at a very interesting conjuncture between bhakti, devotion, and dharma or karma. It's a question. And he mentions very particularly, he writes quite a bit about this thinking, which I mentioned, Bishwana Chakravarti. And so this, from my point of view, is the unifying, unifying structure of that book too. See, I'm unifying structures. I, I, I always do that. We have, a, we have a chapter by Carl Olson on Shankara's Gita's commentary. 
then we have a chapter by uh, Alexander uh, Muskokov uh, about uh, the Bhagavad Gita and Sri uh, Vaishnavism. I mean, we take a uh, Ramanuja and then uh, Shankar and then a uh, Ramanuja. Uh, Richard Davis's chapter is about the Gita Mahatmyas. Uh, and then we have a chapter by Jim Ryan who writes about uh, the nationalistic uh, thinkers, uh, Gandhi, uh, Sri Aurobindo, and uh, Bal Gangadhar Tilak, their, uh, their understanding of the Gita. And then we have a chapter by uh, John Lulin, who is writing about the Gita of the Gurus. And he takes five gurus and writes how they uh, interpreted the Gitas, uh, their, their, their Gita commentaries. There may be another chapter, which I'm not sure yet. That's a chapter I wrote about the Gita as a potentially an all-Indian uh, book. And in that chapter, I uh, show how the Gita can be compatible with the with nine religions in India. Of course, Hinduism, uh, then Buddhism, quite easy. And then Jainism, of course. Then Sikh religion. Uh, then uh, Judaism, some Jews in India. Christianity, of course. Uh, then Islam, I show how the Gita can be compatible with Islam, uh, and then Baha'i and Zoroastrian religions. So we'll see if that chapter will be included, but that's uh, basically the book with myself, then Arvind Sharma, Carl Olson, Alexander Uskakov, Joseph O'Connell's chapter, Richard Davis, Jim Ryan, and John Lulins. Well, that certainly sounds like a fascinating uh, collection of papers. Uh, we'll have to have you back on the program once that new book uh, emerges. Um, so for those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Itamar Tirur at Zafat Academic College um, in Israel about uh, a book that was actually originally published in 2010 with Ashgate and is uh, just now this year, 2019, out with Rutledge, India. It is a book on a very famous uh, Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita. Um, the title is Exploring the Bhagavad Gita, Philosophy, Structure, and Meaning. Thank you very much for this very fascinating chat. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be with you. All right. Take care. Uh, for those of you listening, until next time, keep reading. Take care. <laughs>